So this week we're going to start a new series. Um, it's going to take about eight weeks, in fact, to do this one. And I want to look at the, the story behind Paul's letters. So not just the letters themselves, but why were they written? How did they come about? And they're all sort of connected to each other, obviously, to the life of Paul. And so to really get a sense of what's going on in these letters, we really need to start with who Paul was and, and what was the story of his missionary work and, and how do they all fit within that. And so what I want to try to do is sort of tie together um, each of his letters with the book of Acts. So follow Paul's life as much as we can through Acts and then see how each of these letters ties into that. So to begin with, we're going to start with Paul's life, with his background, who he was, why he was, you know, how did he come to be the Apostle Paul? Now, this is going to repeat some stuff that I've covered in previous episodes. So if you've been listening to this podcast and you're familiar with some of these stories about who Paul is, probably just skip about the first half of this episode. And then in the second half, I'm going to pick up where um, what, where and why uh, well, why Paul was uh, a letter writer the way that he was. How did these letters come about? What these letters actually were. So hopefully this will be helpful. Um, it's going to be a, a longer series than, than I've done before, but I really hope that when you put it all together, it's, it's going to be just a really great foundation for you uh, as you're reading through your New Testament. So let's see how we go. Now, like a lot of ancient figures, we just don't know a lot about the life of Paul, certainly his earlier years. There's really just such little information that we have that it's kind of, it really is guesswork. It's it's sort of trying to take a few little clues uh, of dates um, that we can pick up from the story of Paul and try to calculate the rest of his years and life within that. So our best guess is that Paul was born in around about 5 CE. Now, for anyone in the ancient world, they didn't know what year they were born in anyway, because they they didn't count years linearly the way that we do today. Most people, in fact, nobody actually really even knew how old they were themselves. Uh, when you see uh, um, tombstones or you see uh, lists of people's names, it will always say uh, about 35 years old or about 30 years old because they themselves didn't actually know how old they were. So if they didn't know how old they were or when they were born, it's going to be almost impossible for us to figure out that ourselves from from 2000 years uh, further on in time. So again, our best guess is that Paul is probably born about 5 CE. So he's probably, you know, maybe upwards of 10 years younger than Jesus. Jesus was pro probably born about 4 to 5 BC. So Paul's a little bit younger than than Jesus was. But thereabouts. Now, we know from Acts 21 that Paul was from Tarsus. And, and Tarsus is a very famous city in the ancient world. And it's famous for a couple of different things, which tend to sort of give us a bit of insight maybe into who Paul was. So the first thing we know about Tarsus is that it had a very large linen, linen working trade. So it was known for its production of, uh, of clothes and, and of, uh, of cloth and, and these sorts of things. So that would make sense then why Paul may have become the leather worker that he became. Now, we, we always read about Paul being a tent maker, quote unquote. Well, a tent maker 
is somebody who makes tents, but tents are made out of leather. So if you can make tents, then you can work with leather. If you can work with leather, then you can make anything out of leather. So that could be any number of things. It could be uh, bags or shoes or horse saddles or, um, you know, wine casks or everything that was made out of leather you could work with. So this is a really handy trade for Paul to pick up. Now, we don't know when he picked up this trade, whether it was as a young man, uh, whether it was something he did when he knew that he was going to go into missionary work, he needed a trade that he could take with him. Again, we don't know. We just know that he was this, um, in the Greek, skenopios, literally just a, a worker of leather. That's, that's what his trade was. Now, it's a really handy trade to have when you're a traveling preacher because it means that you don't have to carry a lot of stuff with you. So if you're a blacksmith, you've got to have an anvil and a furnace and hammers and just a lot of heavy equipment. If you're, What that means is that you're stuck in a city. Basically, you can never leave because it's just too hard to move all of that equipment. Whereas for Paul, as a leather worker, all he needs to have is some knives, he needs some thread, maybe some needles, just some really basic equipment is all he's going to need. And he can really just go take that wherever he goes. It really, he just needs a pouch to carry a small amount of tools in, and he's a mobile tradesman. So for somebody who's going to be traveling a lot, this is the ideal sort of trade that you want to have. Now, what it also meant was, was that Paul really would have stunk. <laughs> and I mean that literally, he really would have stunk. Um, when he was doing his work, and he wasn't working all the time, uh, we've talked, talked about that a few weeks ago uh, in the podcast, but when he did have to work, it was a really disgusting job. Leather working was just a horrible job. And the reason was, is that to prepare leather is just a really vile, horrible thing to have to do. So leather, of course, comes from the skin of an animal. So imagine a cow that's been slaughtered, the skin's been taken off. Now, that skin has to be prepared. It doesn't just, you, if you think about, you know, a leather coat that you might have or a leather bag, that was once an animal. So how did it get from uh, an animal, a living, breathing creature, to being this, uh, you know, nice material that feels nice, that smells nice, or imagine the, the seats in your car. Um, if how, did, how does that process happen? Well, 2,000 years ago, for someone like Paul, what it would have meant was you need to get, first of all, get the skin. You actually need to get the, the hide of the animal, and then you've got to prepare it. So the first thing that has to happen is you need to get all the bits of meat and fat and all the, the stuff inside the animal. That all needs to come off. So all that has to be scraped off. And so you're going to leave it for a while, let it rot a little bit so that it's easier to, to take off. And then you've got to get all that hair off. Well, that doesn't just pluck out. You, you need to soften it up. You need to make it in, in such a way that it's easy to remove. Now, the way that you do that is that you soak the skin, the hide, in a big vat of urine. And so urine um, is a great chemical for loosening and for removing these hairs. So you leave it sitting in that for a couple of weeks. So already you're working in a shop that is full of vats of urine. And, and that's a precious commodity for, for you as a tanner. That's, that's like your bread and butter sort of material. So you've got a lot of that lying around. So you're soaking. And this is, of course, a time before gloves and before soap and before perfume. Well, you, you're not going to be um, – you're going to be wearing this all the time is the point. 
So you soak it in that and then you leave that for a few weeks and then you come back and you can scrape all that hair off. And so now you've got this, uh, this, this hide that's been stripped of all of its fur and all of the meat on the other side of it. Now you've got to let that dry. So you, you let it all sort of cure. And then you've got a really hard, very unworkable piece of height. So now you need to soften it up. Well, the best thing to do that is the enzymes that are found in dog feces. Uh, and so you need to go and get lots of feces and rub it into this height. You need to just work it in that. And that's what's going to help soften up the material. So this process is naturally going to take weeks and weeks to do that. All of this has been done by hand in a time where, well, it's just not a very hygienic time to be alive. Now, these, these shops were so vile and so disgusting that they were not allowed to be in the city. I mean, these cities would have stunk. I mean, these, these are places with open sewerages and just very poor sort of hygiene. They already would have stunk by virtue of being an ancient city. They, these shops were so bad that even the people in the city didn't want to have them in the city itself. And so you've got to work outside of the city in order to do this job. So what that means for Paul is that, again, when he was doing his work, he just would have stunk. He just would have been a horrible person to be around. So already that's just to give you an image. We, we might have this image of this holy man who floated around through life and everybody just gravitated to him. No, they probably would have been repelled by him, certainly when he was doing his work. So that's one thing we know about Tarsus. So that's maybe maybe likely where Paul got his, uh, his, his trade from. The other thing that we know about Tarsus is that it was a university city. So there's three key university cities in the, in the ancient world. You've got Athens, you've got Alexandria, and you've got Tarsus. And so what Tarsus prides itself on is its pursuit of Greek culture. So it's a very educated city. It's a, it's a university city. So even if you don't go to university, uh, you're still in a city that's full of universities, full of educated people, and people come into the city to be educated. So it's one of those places where even if you're not formally trained, you're, you're, you, you pick it up by osmosis. You're going to have be exposed to um, sophisticated Greek culture, sophisticated Greek education. This is going to be something you just absorb. So for Paul, even if he didn't go to school there, he would have absorbed it. He would have picked it up by virtue of being a citizen of Tarsus. Now, presumably, Paul did have an education. He would have had some sort of training in Tarsus. He seems to certainly have that more sophisticated background. And so for Paul, what that means is, is that he's very uh, familiar, he's very um, cultured in Greek culture. He knows this world very well. He's been brought up really in the heartland of what it means to be a sophisticated Greek person. Now, that's going to come in very handy for him later on because, well, as we're going to see, to preach this message of the gospel, of this message of Christ to a Greek world, you need to have an understanding of how Greek people think. Well, there's really no better candidate for that than somebody who's been raised and trained in a city that prides itself on its Greek education. Now, another thing we find out about Paul is that he was a Roman citizen. Now, he actually specifies that he was born a Roman citizen. Now, that's a really important distinction to make because that means that his parents were Roman citizens as well. It means that he comes from a family of Roman citizens. Now, there's different ways that you can become a citizen. One is being born a citizen to 
Roman citizens themselves, but you can also earn citizenship through various ways as well. One of the key ways that you can earn your citizenship is to have been a slave. So one of the um, upsides of being liberated from slavery, apart from being liberated from slavery, is that you automatically gain Roman citizenship. You automatically have that ticket into society that many people living in the Roman Empire simply didn't have. So it was quite a privileged thing to have that. Other ways that you could earn your citizenship might be that if you do a good deed for the Romans, you do a favor for the Romans, and in reward, they give you the privilege of being a Roman citizen. And so there are certain privileges that come along with that, certain protections that are just simply not available to a non-citizen. So this is a very important thing to have. Now, what that means for Paul, again, we don't know where it came from. Maybe his parents did something for the Romans that earned them citizenship, and so by virtue of being born to them, he becomes a a citizen. Another suggestion might be that in about 67 BC, when Pompey came in and conquered Jerusalem, he took away a lot of Jews back to Rome into slavery. And so those slaves presumably served their time as slaves and then were released. Having been released, they became Roman citizens. And so Paul may have descended from some of those people. Maybe that's how they ended up in Tarsus rather than uh, somewhere around Israel or, or Judea or around Galilee. So again, we can only speculate, but the fact that he was born a citizen is a very high status thing to have. Now that comes with a I mean, implies a couple of things. Number one, it would imply that Paul would have worn a toga. So you could only wear a toga if you're a Roman citizen. Now, when Paul's in Jerusalem, he's not going to wear a toga. He doesn't want to um, project his Romanness in a very anti-Roman city. But when he's out preaching in Greek cities and in Roman cities, naturally he's going to wear his toga. That's a mark of his freedom and that's a mark of his privilege to be able to move freely within the empire, to be able to do things that other uh, people of the empire wouldn't have been able to do. Now, what it also would have meant was that he had a Roman name. Now, the way that the the Romans name their kids is like us. They have a given name, a family name, but then you have to distinguish between the children because everybody basically has the same name. Now, there are a number of family names. So let's take as an example, uh, Gaius Julius Caesar. So Gaius is his given name. That's um, that, that's what, like my name is Adam, his name is, is Gaius. The family name then is Julius. And so that's a very famous Roman name. The Julii clan were one of the original families from the very origins of, of Rome itself. So that, that in itself is a, is a privileged name. And so that's something he holds on to. But Gaius is the given name. Now, the problem in Rome is that you've only got about 17 names to choose from. There's quite literally about 17 names. That's it. So basically everybody is named Gaius or Marcus or Lucius. Like we see the same names turning up time and time and time again, because there's not many to choose from. So there are so many Gaius Juliuses within the family. How do you distinguish between them? Well, you give them a nickname. And so you you give them a cognomen. So a third name, which sets them apart or distinguishes that one from all the other ones. So in the case of Gaius Julius Caesar, Caesar is this nickname, it's this cognomen that indicates that he's not one of these other Gaius Juliuses. Now, ironically, the word, the name Caesar means hairy, 
which becomes an irony when later on as Caesar starts to go bald, his name actually is Harry. But anyway, for whatever that's worth. So for Paul, we don't actually know what his first two names would be. He would have a pronomen, he would have a nomen, he would have a family name and a given name. We just don't know what those are. And we say, well, hang on a second, we know that he was Paul, or was he Saul? He's got these two names to go by, which one was which? Well, almost certainly the Paul, the Paulos, would be the nickname, the given name. And that's a very Greek name. Paulos is a very Greek name. The Saul, on the other hand, is a very Jewish name. And that would very likely be given to him from his parents as a sort of a mark of his Jewishness, as a sort of an ethnic name to distinguish him not just from other, whatever his name was, but from other um, boys generally to indicate that he's, he's a Jewish boy. Now, the name Saul, well, Paul, if you remember, was from the tribe of Benjamin. Who was the most famous person from the tribe of Benjamin? Well, of course, that was King Saul. And so the name would have come after King Saul. So we actually don't know his full name. We know him as Paul and we know him as Saul, and he alternates between the two names. Why does he do that? Well, when he's amongst Jews, he's going to use his Jewish name. But when he's amongst Greeks, he's going to use his Greek name. So he has both of these to work with. And really what it kind of indicates is something of his dual identity. We've already seen his Greek identity coming from Tarsus, but he also has this very strong Jewish identity, one being raised by Jewish parents in a Jewish community, but also, as we go to find out, from his Jewish education. So if Paul was born in 5 CE, AD, whichever convention you want to use, um, that would mean that when he came to Jerusalem, we know that he comes to Jerusalem to get educated. That would have taken place as a teenager, so maybe around about 20 CE, 20 AD, some, so thereabouts, maybe early 20s. He goes to Jerusalem to get educated. Now, did his parents bring him down? Did they all move down or did they pay for him to go down? That was a very common thing to do. You pay for your children to go get educated in, in, the, um, in the major cities. We don't exactly know how he got to be there, but what we do know is that he turned up in Jerusalem to be educated. Now, why did they send him to Jerusalem? Well, because they wanted him to have a proper Jewish education. Uh, Saul was clearly a gifted child, as we find out later, and so Tarsus wouldn't have been the place to get that sort of education that he required. So they he went down to Jerusalem in order to get that. Now, we know from his own testimony that he was trained under Gamaliel. Now, we know this Gamaliel. We meet him in the book of Acts early on where he confronts the Sanhedrin or Gamaliel as a member of the Sanhedrin uh, offers a counterpoint to what to do with these Christians. So the, these new Christians are causing all sorts of problems in Jerusalem. They're trying to figure out what do we do with these guys. Gamaliel's the one who says, hey, look, um, don't, just don't do anything. Right? If it's from God, then we're only fighting against God, and that's not going to end well. And if it isn't from God, then God's going to put an end to it. He'll, he'll deal with it. He's bigger than us. He can sort this out. So that's the Gamaliel that we find uh, that, that Paul came to study under. Now, what's really interesting about that is that we, Paul became a Pharisee. Gamaliel was a Pharisee. Paul, was, too, was a Pharisee. And, and what a Pharisee was was just essentially um, a, a teacher of 
Jewish law, uh, and really just uh, it was a movement or a body of people who saw their role as being to exemplify what it is to live faithfully to God's law. And so they were sort of, they were, they were effectively just teachers of the law. Now, within that, they had different branches of uh, of being Pharisees. So you've got two sort of main schools um, within the ranks of the Pharisees. On the one hand, you've got the Shammaiites. Now, the belief of the Shammaiites, well, the belief of all Jews is that we need to overthrow the Romans. We need to get these pagans out of our land. The land needs to be restored to us. That's the only way that, um, that, that we can be fully restored to being the people of God. We have to get rid of the, the, these Romans. Now, how do we do that? Well, if you ask a Shemite, they'll say that you need to violently oppose these pagan invaders, right? You absolutely just need to do whatever it takes, um, take up your swords, drive them out by force. The alternative school is the Hillelite school, which says, you know, look, God's big enough to look after himself. He will do what he wants to do. We just need to remain faithful. So just take a passive approach, let God do what he wants, and in the meantime, we just stay faithful to him. So really what they create are two alternative ways to live out the law. The, to live out the law is to live a life that is um, in conformity to the will of God. And so the question then is, what does God want from us? Does he want us to just let him take care of matters, or does he want us to take up swords and drive out these, these pagans by force? Well, clearly, Gamaliel is from this school of the Hillelites. He's got this more passive approach to, um, to, to how to deal with the Romans, whereas Paul, on the other hand, becomes clearly a Shemite Pharisee. He's uh, absolutely take up your swords and remove any threats to the stability of the people of God. And that's exactly what we find out uh, as he grows up because he becomes the primary persecutor of this new way, of these Christians, um, these, new, these new followers of Christ who are saying that Jesus is actually, actually the Messiah. So by his late 20s then, Saul has become a very prominent young, he's still young at this stage, he's still a junior in a lot of ways, but he's becoming very prominent, he's risen up through the ranks. In fact, he says to the Galatians that he was he, he advanced beyond everyone else in his generation, he, he really was the top student. And we find, uh, we, we see in the account of his life, that the way that this was being outworked was the way that he was trying to destroy this new movement. See, what Paul or Saul would have seen in this new Christian movement or these followers of the way was a group of apostates. The, the law should be lived out in one way. The Messiah is, uh, we're still waiting for the Messiah to come. When the Messiah does come, we're going to know that it's clearly this is the Messiah and he's the one who's going to lead us to this revolution. And so these followers of the way are, are clearly heretics. They're clearly preaching uh, apostasy and they're leading many in the city astray through their false teaching. And so they need to be stopped. The, the problem that for the Jews originally was that they would follow false teachers. They would be, they were led into idolatry and so they went into exile. And so the goal then of people like the Pharisees was to prevent that from ever happening again. So what they would have seen then in these Christians is this threat that this is going to lead us back into Babylon, lead us back into exile. And so 
we've got to do whatever it takes to stop them. Now, again, Gamaliel's way was to say, look, just let him go. God will deal with them as he pleases. Saul, on the other hand, says, no, we need to take up swords and we need to destroy them. Now, what was at the basis of this idea? Why was it that Saul thought that these Christians were apostates? Well, for Paul, his um, sort of driving verse, one of the key verses that he had that he used against these Christians was this one in Deuteronomy 21.23. Now, he mentions it again in Galatians 3.13, which basically says, "Cursed anyone who's hung on a tree is cursed by God. Now, the way that he interprets this is that Jesus was was crucified, he was hung up on a tree, and so obviously he must be under God's curse. Clearly, there's no other way to explain how do you get crucified other than you're cursed by God. And so the conclusion to that is obvious. Well, if he's cursed by God, then he can't be the Messiah. It's just not possible for him to be the Messiah if he is cursed from God. It's just irreconcilable. And so this is his uh, this this is the argument that he uses to shut down Christians when they say, "Hey, Jesus is the Messiah." He says, no, no, Jesus was crucified. We all saw it. How can he be the Messiah if he was crucified? And so this is his weapon. This is what he's using as a justification for the persecution that he's inflicting. And so he sort of, as he's rising up through the ranks, we find out that he goes to the Sanhedrin and he says, hey, I want to get letters of uh, approval to go into other towns, into other cities, and do the same thing there. We need to flush these Christians out before they completely destroy the Jewish world. And so he sets out to do that. And it's on this journey on this way to Damascus that he has this encounter with Christ. Now, let's just dispel a little myth here that you'll see in artwork that uh, this idea that Paul was knocked off a horse uh, when, he, when he encountered Jesus. And you might even hear preachers say this, you know, Paul was knocked off his horse. Can I just point out, that's just simply not the case. Um, nowhere in Acts does it, is a horse even mentioned. There's just, there's not even any talk of a horse. That idea came about through Renaissance artwork. And so somehow or other, we've allowed that to slip into our beliefs about Paul, which I can only put it down to, well, because you haven't read your Bible. Uh, I don't know how else you can draw that conclusion because it's simply not there in the text. So Paul wasn't knocked off a horse. Let's just just settle that matter right now. But what did certainly happen was that he encountered Jesus Christ. And this was quite obviously the game-changing moment of his life. This was an absolute, complete 180 turnaround of everything about where he was going, what he's doing, his whole life's purpose. Now, the question is, what changed? What happened in that moment when he encountered Jesus that shifted his entire thinking and understanding about who Jesus was? Well, it was a reimagining of what this verse means, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. If Jesus was cursed by God, therefore he was crucified, well, then he can't be the Messiah. But what if it means something else? See, what Paul realized is that Jesus indeed was cursed, but not because of anything he had done. Jesus wasn't cursed by God because of his own sin. He became the curse for us. We were cursed because of our sin. Jesus took that curse and he took it to the cross. And so, yes, indeed, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree, but in this case, cursed on behalf of us. 
And so he is the Messiah, absolutely 100%. He is the promised Messiah, and this is truly the way to salvation. So this brings us up to about 30, the year 34, thereabouts. Um, so Paul's maybe sort of very late 20s, or maybe around the age of 30 now. And so he's had this radical conversion experience, and then he just disappears. <laughs> really, for about the next 17 years or so, Paul just kind of vanishes off the map. The story of Acts continues with Peter and the other apostles, and, and Paul just sort of falls away from the story. Now, we don't really know what happened during this time. We get some clues. He tells us in Galatians 1.17 that he spent three years in Arabia. So we can estimate maybe between 34 and 36, Paul spent some time in Arabia, but we don't know what he was doing there. We just simply got no idea. Now, we can assume, and I guess certainly for Paul, it would have been trying to figure out what does all of this mean? Um, his, his whole world has been turned on its head. Everything he thought he understood about who the Messiah was and what God's plan for his people is all of that has been completely changed. And so for him, he needs to, I guess, rethink, rework what does all of it look like now? Um, what does it mean to be the people of God? And, and really importantly, what role does the law play in this new world? If Jesus is the Messiah, if Jesus is the way to salvation, then what about all these other things that we've been doing? Like, for example, circumcision or kosher or Sabbath or all these things that we've been doing to be the people of God, because to be the people of God means to be Jewish. You need to be Jewish to be the people of God. So if that's if that's the case, or, or or is that still the case now in this new world? And especially, too, for Gentiles. What does it mean for Gentiles to be the people of God? That's going to be an important question that Paul has to ask himself because, well, this is going to be his ministry. What does it mean? Do Gentiles, are they required to go through the same um, processes? Do they need to become Jewish to become Christian? So this, I imagine, would be just a continual point of discussion and debate that he would have had in synagogues and with other Jewish teachers, just trying to figure all of this out. So a couple of years would be spent probably doing that. Um, you know, when you read the book of Romans, Romans is just Paul uh, reciting an argument that he's had a hundred times before with many teachers prior. And it's really just Paul rehearsing something he's just done before. And so, again, we can imagine that these that was just a debate that he's in questions that he's been answering time and again, probably going back to his time in Arabia. So then we, we know he was there, but then there's even more silence for about the next 10 years. He really just fell off the map. We just don't know what he does for the next 10 years. But in around about 46, he seems to turn up again in, um, in Tarsus. So he's at the very least, he's gone back home. He's gone back to Tarsus, um, obviously going back to his, his origins. Jerusalem is not his home. He went there to get educated. He stayed there with Gamaliel. He became a Pharisee, but that's not home for him. He's gone back home to Tarsus. Now, again, we don't know what he was doing there, probably preaching in synagogues, having these debates, carrying on. We, again, we can only guess, we can only speculate. But what is really interesting, and this is where Paul kind of comes back into the narrative. He's been gone for a long time, but now he re-emerges into the story. And so we pick it up in Acts eleven nineteen. 19. 
It says, now those who've been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only amongst Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So this is a really pivotal moment then, not just for Paul, but for the whole church. So what's happened is that Stephen had been martyred by Saul, of of all people, and the church in Jerusalem had been scattered. Everyone's just gone, fleeing to uh, other places within the Jewish world. But what it's very clear here is that these um, Jewish sort of uh, exiles were preaching, but only amongst other Jewish people. They were only preaching probably in the synagogues or amongst the Jewish community and probably staying within predominantly Jewish cities uh, around, in and around Galilee, Judea, these sorts of places. But inevitably, there were some preachers who started to preach to Gentiles and not Gentiles who converted to Judaism and so therefore understood scripture and knew all of that. Not those, genuine Greeks, people who have no idea about Torah, no idea about what goes on in the synagogue, just absolute, complete newbies to this whole world, they start to hear the message as well. And so as a result of that, these Greeks are becoming Christians. They're coming in and becoming followers of the way. And the big question that's now being asked is what do we do with them? How do we integrate them into our world? Because we've, even though we're Christians, we're still Jewish, both ethnically Jewish, culturally Jewish in every way, shape, and form. And so we're asking the question, do these Gentiles have to now become Jewish in order to become Christian? And this is the fundamental question that has been asked in the early church. And so we just don't know what to do with this. But more than that, we just don't think like Greek people. We don't understand how these people think. They're from just from a different culture to what we are. And we can't, so to, in order for us to be able to translate this message into that world is very difficult because it's just not something we're familiar with. We've just been brought up around Jewish people. You know, when you think about the disciples of Jesus, they were all fishermen and tax collectors and people from Galilee, people from Judea who have grown up in a purely Jewish world. Their only exposure to the Gentile world would be through Romans and just people that they would have nothing to do with. So they don't know how to uh, talk to these people, deal with these people, let alone integrate them into their communities. And so we need somebody who can walk in both worlds. We need somebody who can integrate these people effectively, but also take the message out. The message is clearly going into the Gentile world. We are not going to stop that. So we need to figure out a way to do this that's the most effective and that's going to keep the message going out properly and going out in the way that it needs to go out. Well, who better person to call than Saul, right? There's there's no better candidate for somebody who can walk in both of these worlds. So Barnabas goes and retrieves Saul from Tarsus and it's from here that he launches out into, well, they both launch out into what becomes Paul's first missionary journey. And so we pick up this story in Acts chapter 13. Now I'm going to stop the story here because we're going to pick it up again next week and we're going to follow this story through um, as we sort of unfold it within the context of Paul's letters. But there's one thing I, I just wanted to draw attention to, something I love so much about this story. So it's about 48 thereabouts, 48 CE. Um, Paul's about to launch into his first missionary journey. Now this would make Paul 
at the youngest, maybe 43, maybe somewhere in his mid-40s. Now, what I like about that, that's actually my age, I'm 43, but it it's what I love about this story is that Paul doesn't really begin what we know of his missionary work until he's in his mid-40s. Now, obviously, he's been doing things before this, but his real calling, the real thing where he's going to make the most impact is, is happening in his mid-40s. Now, the way that I read that is that it's taken all of these years to prepare Paul for what he needs to do. 40 plus years of preparation, teaching and training and all the experiences that he's had to go through in order to prepare him for what he's about to launch out in this journey. But then all of his missionary journeys, all three of the journeys that he, that he does, only take 10 years. They cover just the span of a decade. From the time Paul leaves to go to Galatia to the time he's arrested, we're talking about, four, talking about 10 years, which is just remarkable. 40 plus years of preparation for only 10 years of ministry. Yet in that 10 years, he changed the world. You're listening to this podcast because of what Paul did in that 10-year space of time. It's just absolutely extraordinary to me the way that just just the way God works, the way that this sort of happens in, in God's economy. It's just something I'm anyway, I just find that a very encouraging little part of this story, particularly at the age that I find myself at. But anyway, so that's sort of where we're going to pick up the story next week. But when we come back after this quick break, I'm just going to just quickly look then at what are these letters? What are these things that we call the Bible? That's, um, you know, what are they? Why are they? But also what what are these things? How do they come into being? So hang around for that. Hey, I just wanted to take a moment to say thanks so much for listening. I hope you're finding this podcast helpful. If you're enjoying it, please consider leaving a five-star review, which will help to spread it further. And you might also enjoy the YouTube channel and other social media that's attached to the New Testament story. You can find the link for these in the show notes. And finally, you might also consider supporting the channel financially. You can do that through the same link. But anyway, back to the show. So before we get into why Paul wrote these letters, I want to answer a question you've probably never asked before, but what are these letters? What is it that Paul wrote? What what were these documents? And I think it's an important question because when we think about our Bibles today, we just think about an app on our phone. I mean, it was only maybe 10 years ago when we, maybe some of you still do read paper Bibles, and I, I hope we do, but we just default to thinking that our Bibles are these these apps. Um, or even when we think about a book, we think about you know just this volume that we can buy from a bookshop that has all of the books of the Bible, but we just talk about it as the Bible. It's just this book with lots of smaller books and chapters and verses and all of these things. We've just got kind of this standard idea of, uh, of what all of this is. But of course, that's all very new you know, having, you know, nicely published books in our, uh, in, a, in, in our own language, um, you know, again, with these nice, neat chapters and verses and all very well laid out maps in the back and pictures and all sorts of things. Again, we take that for granted, but that's just not the way it was. That's just not what these things were when Paul first developed them or, or these gospels when they were first written. So I just said, I just want to look at the practical element of, of what these were. And I guess the first question is like, why did Paul write letters? Now, if you think about it, 
um, Paul preached in churches. He was with the people um, when he was there. He didn't need to write anything to them. So why did he have to write? Well, what we see is Paul traveling around all over the Mediterranean. And so wherever he went into a city, he'd leave behind some communities or a community of Christians. And after a while, he generally would have to write to them. Now, the one of the things you notice about these letters that he writes is that they're almost always dealing with a problem. They're dealing with something that is going wrong in the community. Now, this hopefully will dispel the idea that the New Testament church was this perfect group of saints that never had anything wrong. They were making mistakes all the time. They were quite terrible in some circumstances. And so, one, it's a comforting reminder that you know even the first church that had Paul himself as their pastor was still getting it wrong. But it's also interesting to think that if they didn't have problems, we wouldn't have a Bible. Paul only wrote these letters because there were problems that he had to that he had to address. If there weren't problems, there wouldn't be any letters from Paul. We would never have heard from him. So in a way, we couldn't be grateful that the fact that they did have problems. Otherwise, again, we wouldn't have heard a single thing about Paul. We wouldn't have been we, we wouldn't hear a word from him. So anyway, that's sort of. A, Let's just try to get a different picture of, of, of what these things are. So Paul writes these letters to deal with these problems. But again, what were the letters? What was it actually that Paul was creating? What was it that they received when he sent these letters? The first thing to note or to keep in mind is that letter writing was an art form. There, were, uh, there weren't many people that could write letters because very few people were actually educated you know, we take for granted, certainly in the Western world, that we can just, we can all write or we can type. But for those guys, only a very few people could even do this process. And the work of writing the letter in itself was a very long process. Again, we type out or even if we handwrite something, it's a fairly quick process. But for these guys, every stage of the process was all done by hand. All of it had to be done by the person doing the work. And that began with just making ink. So, the ink itself, you've, you've only got two choices of color, red or black. And the, obviously the most common color of ink was, was black. And that's made from um, mixing charcoal or lamp black, <clears throat> uh, lamp black mixed with gum Arabic. So take some gum Arabic and mix it with the, the, the charcoal you get from your, um, your lamps that you use to light. And even just the thought that, you know, you most of the time when you're writing, you're in a fairly dark room and you've just got one of those little oil lamps that you're writing by. You can barely see what it is that you're doing. So you've got to mix all of this together. And what that means, number one, it's very easy to make, but it's also fade resistant. So it's a very uh, effective type of ink. The problem is that it's not waterproof. So you can write this out. And on the one hand, it's good because it means that you can easily fix a mistake. Um, if you've got just a, a, a wet rag, you can just wipe off uh, any any mistake that you've made. Once it's dry, of course, it's, it's going to be harder to do that. But in the initial stages, you can just just sort of deal with it very easily. So you you make your own ink, and then you've got to make your own pens. Now, a pen is made from a plant. So they're a plant called a Juncus maritimus. Um, so these are sort of long, stiff stem type plants that grow along the Nile. So you'll get these, and you've got to cut them into pens. You've got to carve the, the nib out and, and these are what you're using to dip into the ink to write your um, to write your letters, to write whatever your documents are. So you're talking about maybe an 8 to 10 inch length and then a little split 
made in the tip, which is going to absorb the ink. So you can dip the, the pen into the ink and it's going to absorb up into that little slit. Think about a fountain pen that you might see and you, that little sort of slit that you, you see in those. So it's the same, it's, well, it's exactly the same principle, only you're doing it with a plant and something you, you're sort of making yourself. But then there's the writing material. Again, we think about paper. That's our default writing material. For those guys, they didn't have paper. That's something that comes much, much later on. What they wrote on, well, there's a very a variety of different writing materials that you could use. Uh, one of the most common things that you would write on would be bits of broken pottery. So in every city, you're going to find lots and lots of broken pottery. Pots, um, uh, ceramic pots are used for absolutely everything. And so these are getting broken all the time and there's broken shards of them absolutely everywhere. Now, these little pieces of broken pottery that in the Greek are called ostraka and they're they're everywhere and they're all over the ground. And so naturally it's easy just to pick those up and to write something down. So you might uh, write a receipt or you might just write a short note. And we find so many examples of these. We've actually find later on examples of little Bible verses written on these bits of a straka, kind of like something you carry around with you. Now, where, where this word might be familiar, this word ostraka, it's where we get our word ostracism from. So the process in Athens was that if you were, uh, you would have an election every year for several candidates who were people that were becoming a problem in the city. And so a vote would be taken as to who would be removed from the city for a period of 10 years. And so the way these votes were taken was that all of the citizens would grab just bits of these ostraka off the ground, write the name of the person they want to vote out of the city, and then they would cast their ballot. So that's where we get our word ostracism from. So that's a really, really common form of, um, of writing material. We find so many examples of this because everybody could, could access that material. Another type of writing material is a, a wax tablet that's called a kodakili. So the idea of this, if you think about, as we're going to see, writing material is very expensive. And so you can't just, you know, we think about today, we write a piece of, we, we buy a, a notepad for a few cents and we write something, make a mistake, scrunch it up, throw it out, get a new piece of paper. That's just not something you do in the ancient world. Writing material is very expensive. And so if you're going to write on an expensive piece of material, you need to make sure that you have tested what it is that you're going to write. You need to make sure that it's, number one, it's going to fit, that you, you've got everything set out in a way that is going to fit on that expensive piece of material. So how do you do that? How do you practice the, the writing before you put it on the expensive piece? Well, what you get is one of these tablets, which is, imagine a piece of um, sheet, a sheet of uh, timber, just a thin sheet of timber with a wooden frame around it. So picture, just imagine a picture frame with um, just like a, a thin wooden backing. Now, what you do is pour wax inside that frame. So the, the frame kind of creates a, a bit of a barrier and then you pour wax in and the, the, the wax sits on top of that thin piece of wood. Now what you've got then is effectively an ancient etch-a-sketch. It's something you can, you can write into the wax 
and then you can make sure that everything's correct. You can make sure it's all sized up properly. And then having written it out, you can then take that and transfer a proper copy onto a piece of, of writing material. And then when you're done with, with it, you can just melt the wax and start again. So you've effectively got a reusable piece of writing material, easy to write in because you just scratch it into wax. It doesn't require ink. It just requires something to scrape into the wax. And so again, we find heaps of these because this is what school kids would use to write with. Again, they're not using expensive writing materials. They're writing on these wax boards because they're learning their ABCs. You're not going to buy expensive writing material to teach a kid how to write ABC, ABC, ABC. You're going to use something that's reusable. And so we find heaps of examples of these where the wood has actually been scratched over and over again with these kids doing their lessons. So that's a standard piece of, um, of, of writing material that any secretary would have or anybody who's a professional writer would have one of these to take notes and to um, just to do all of that sort of draft work. Now, more ex- the, the more permanent uh, type of writing material, uh, the less common one is what we call parchment. So this is basically a piece of leather. So something Paul would be very familiar with, but very expensive at the same time. So this is very tough and obviously much more expensive and is going to last a lot longer. I mean, we still have examples of these parchment because they're made of le- they're made of leather. They're made of something that's much more uh, less perishable in terms of its material. So in the same process as we described before, you take the bit of animal hide and you prepare it in the same way as you would um, for, um, for, for using leather, you would use it for this writing material. Now, it would have two sides. So inside the material, that was polished with a pumice stone. So that would make it smooth and make it very thin. And then it gets whitened with chalk. And that's what you're going to use to write on. And so then you could cut sheets of this, like, you know, small A5 or A4, A, yeah, A4 sheets, and you could even sew them together. And that way you could sort of create something like a, a scroll if you wanted to make a long line of it, or you can make maybe sort of a book form. But again, this is a much more exclusive, much more expensive way of doing your writing. Now, the most common material that you're going to write on is papyrus. And you would have heard about papyrus before. And this is what most, this is what our New Testament is written in. So a papyrus is just, it's, it's a type of plant. It's a grass that grows along the side of the Nile. And these are long, long, big, thick stems of, of this plant. And what you do is that you tear them into strips. You can sort of t- pull strip after strip after strip off them. And then you would lay them out. So if you imagine getting, um, you know, horizontally getting strips sort of all sort of laid down, attached together, sort of pushed up, butted up against each other. And then over the top of that, you would get vertical strips laid across the top, doing the same thing, butting them up. And then another one going horizontally again. And then you would beat them. You would actually sort of hit them, bash it all. And the, all the, the, the juices, all of the, um, the sap in the plant would act as a glue. As it dries out, it glues it together. So then you would get uh, another stone and you would sort of polish along one of the sides. And so the direction, so if the horizontal uh, direction is where you're going to write across, you're not going to write across the grain, you're going to write along the grain. And so this sort of gives you sort of a nice smooth um, piece of writing material. Now, the, the size that these are, are cut into is probably about an A4 size of material. 
Um, now you can take one of those sheets and then again, you can glue them together. So put the sheets together that you've created, get another strip uh, of, uh, of the papyrus and then glue them together in the same way. So you've sort of placed the glue underneath and then you've got this continuous scroll of, um, uh, of, of this papyrus. Now, the longest you could probably make is about 20 sheets rolled together. So about 12 feet worth of, of these things. After that, it starts to get a bit too cumbersome. Um, when we think about the book of Luke and Acts, Luke and Acts are written over two scrolls at the absolute maximum length of about 24 feet. So the reason why we have Luke and Acts in two parts is because they just didn't have a scroll big enough to fit them all into one go. So they've, they've, read, they've written over two longer scrolls. Um, but again, that was about the maximum you could get. Now, one of these big scrolls that we're talking about, it, it's going to cost about eight days wages. So take eight days of your income, and that's how much one scroll is going to cost. So double that, 16 days wages, is going to be the, just the writing material. Just forget about the cost of paying somebody to write it. Just the, the cost of the material itself is going to be about 16 days wages for, uh, for the book of Luke and Acts. So this is Paul's material, but what about the letters themselves? What, what are these letters? Well, like letters in any generation, they're written to address a certain group of people or an individual and to either inform them or to instruct them or to encourage them or to recommend. There's multiple different uses for the letter, and that was true in Paul's time. And we see all the different kinds of letters that you would find, um, letters of recommendation, you've got um, letters of mediation like in Philemon, you've got instruction like in Romans, all sorts of different uh, genres of letter writing turn up in the New Testament, which are exactly the sort of genres you would find in any ancient letter. Now, it's, there's always a standard form. We, we think about, we send an email, we might say, dear such and such, or if we're more familiar with a person, hi such and such, I hope this finds you well, or something to that effect. And then you launch into your content. Same thing is true for these guys. You would start with the sender, a little bit different, but you'd start with the sender. So we, we find Paul is always how he opens his letters. Then the recipient to whoever is the recipient to the church in Corinth, for example, and then a greeting. You know, in Paul's case, it's grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and then a prayer. So the, all of that is just standard letter writing. All That's just your standard format that everybody would use. And then he launches into the letter. Now, as we're going to see in a moment, the difference between Paul's letters and a normal letter is that a normal letter is at the most a postcard length. Paul's letters are entire scrolls. They're, they're something entirely different. And this is what's so distinct about Paul's letter writing is not just that he writes these incredibly long letters to his churches, but he writes them in, the, in a way that they're going to be delivered. You see, we think about a letter, we receive a letter, we read it ourselves, we read it privately. Most people in the ancient world can't read. So for Paul to send a letter to a church, it's really pointless if it, the intention is for everybody to read it by themselves. That's just not something that's going to happen. So the way that these letters are delivered is that they're read aloud to the audience. So this is what's going to happen at your church services in the ancient world. You're going to have, if Paul's sent a letter, this is going to be read out to the audience. So the letters themselves are actually written as speeches. These are actually a form of speech. 
And the person who's delivered the letter would have been delivering them, probably having memorized the letter, would deliver it almost as a performance. It wouldn't have just been read out in some monotone way. It would be performed for an audience. And so there would be a very engaging experience. Now, what that means for us is that we can't just take piecemeal a letter like Romans, you know, just chapter one, verse one or whatever. We need to see them as a whole piece of writing as an entire speech that was intended to be delivered in one sitting. You're supposed to hear this thing in one go. So Paul's letters are a letter, but really they're a speech in the framework of a letter. Now, you might be getting a sense from this that this is a really long process. There's a lot of work that goes into writing one of these letters, and there really is. This, as we're going to see in a moment, the, the time it would take to write something like Romans would be a couple of months of continual work. Now, Paul doesn't have that time. Paul's preaching. Paul needs to be doing the stuff of the ministry. And so what he would do is he would employ a secretary to do the work to do the work for him. He would tell the secretary what to write, but then the secretary would go away and do the drafting in the wax tablets and sit them down with Paul. Are you happy with this? No, make some <clears throat> changes here, move these things around here. And then once he's satisfied with the final draft, then it was up to the secretary to go and actually do all of this work of getting the paper, the papyrus, making the pen, the ink, doing all of the work that's required to write this thing out. So it's a very lengthy and very expensive process that goes along with making with making one of these letters. And so we actually see this in Paul's letters. At the end of Paul's letters, we always find a greeting that he writes at the end of the letter. In the same way, if you think about the CEO of a company, the CEO is very busy. The CEO is not writing all of his or her own letters, right? That's that's just not something that person has time to do. And so what the CEO would do is to get a secretary to do the writing to say, okay, I want a letter that basically says this. And if the CEO is happy with the letter, then they sign at the bottom and you can see the blue ink that would, or the ink that would indicate that this CEO has endorsed what has just been written in this letter. Well, you see this in Paul's letters too. So what you would have to picture is a letter that's been very nicely written out, very formally written out. And then right at the end, Paul would pick up a pen and he would sign it in his own handwriting. And so you would actually see a change in the handwriting in the original letters. And this is Paul saying, you can see my signature. This is me endorsing what this letter has been all about. And so we see examples, 1 Corinthians 16, 21 says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Galatians 6, 11, see what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Colossians 4, 18, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. 2 Thessalonians 3, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. So we see this coming through these letters time and time again. Now, one really interesting one comes in Romans 16, 22. It says there, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Now, that's fascinating because the secretary is actually putting his own name in the letter. So that would presume that this particular secretary was a Christian, part of the Christian community. Now, we don't know who these other secretaries were, but clearly Paul has got somebody to do the work. And then once he's happy with the letter, he signs off at the end of it. Now, I said a moment ago that something like Romans would have been a very long process and a very expensive process. And let me just give you an example of why that was. So from all of the letters that have been found from the ancient world, the shortest letter that we've found is a total of 18 words, right? You, You write text messages longer than that. And the longest letter 
that they've found is 209 words. Again, you probably write text messages longer than that. So the average length in words for an ancient letter is about 87 words. So just these are tiny, tiny little fragments of material and it's just the bare minimum of what needs to be said. Now, for Paul, on the other hand, his shortest letter, Philemon, is 335 words, right? His shortest letter is multiples longer than the longest letter that they've found. And his longest letter, Romans, is 7,114 words. So this is just an, a manual. This, this is a, a novel compared to what a standard letter was. So the average length of Paul's letters is 2,495 words compared to 87 from the, from all of the other letters that we found in the papyrus. So Paul is an extraordinarily long letter writer. It's just there is no one in the ancient world that compares to him. Again, because what he's doing is, is writing these speeches. He's got these extremely long speeches that he's giving to his churches um, in the form of these letters. So very quickly as we wrap up, so how does this process work? What does it look like? Well, you're going to go through multiple draft stages. Again, taking something like Romans, you're going to take go through multiple uh, draft stages. And so each of these drafts might take two to three days to write. And so you would start off, look, okay, just, just give me a framework that says basically follows this, this line of thinking. So come back with that draft. And then he would work with his team, work with Timothy and Silas and these other guys. And they would just continue to add their own little bits, you know, just keep working with it. And so every time you make one of these drafts, it would take maybe two to three days to write out on these wax tablets. And so after a while, you're going to get to this stage where you've got uh, you, you're quite happy with the, with where the letter has come to on these tablets. Now it's time to take that and to transfer that over to the piece of papyrus. And again, that process alone was talking about a couple of weeks worth. So something like Romans, as I say, it's maybe a few months worth of continual work, start to finish, nonstop working on this letter, um, quite a few months worth of work in order to do that. And so then having completed the letter, now we're going to send that off. And that could be any number of ways. There's no formal postal system in the Roman world. What you're going to do is you're going to find somebody who's already traveling in that direction, maybe one of Paul's team, and we see this in some cases, some of members of Paul's team will take the letter with them. Um, but otherwise, generally, if you just send in a letter just to, from Ephesus to Corinth, you're going to go down to the harbor and you're going to say, hey, are you going to Corinth? Well, here's a couple of bucks. Can you take this letter to such and such a person? And we find examples of this. We find letters that on the other side to the letter, you've got the address, which is not a formal address. It's such and such a person at this particular shop uh, around this particular corner, just more of a description of where the place is. And so this letter is sent off and then in Paul's case, delivered to the church um, by the messenger or by somebody within the church who's going to read it out or preach it in, in a sense to to the audience, to the congregation. So just, I, I know, again, that's probably a question you weren't even asking, what 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 was Paul's letters? Uh, but I hope that's been interesting and somewhat helpful just to give you a, a little bit of a starting point, a little bit of um, some practical context to the letters that we're going to look at over the next seven weeks or so. Um, but also, I guess, just as a bit of a takeaway, if we're, you know, when we are reading these letters, just to stop and appreciate um, the work that's gone into them and to appreciate the intention of them. It's, it's, you know, 
you do your devotions, you read a couple of verses or a chapter a day or something like that, and that's all good and well. But don't ever lose sight of the fact that these were meant to be written, or meant to be read and heard in one sitting. They're, they're one whole piece of argument, one whole piece of work that are meant to be taken into fully in that one go in order to at least appreciate the fullness of their context. Well, anyway, that's enough from me today. Um, hopefully that's been helpful. As I say, next week we're going to launch into Paul's missionary work and we're going to start with his first missionary journey and how that results in the letter to the Galatians. But otherwise, have a great week and I look forward to seeing you next week. All the best. Thank you.